RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new Starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shenzhou for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 280, Battle Lines. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, fighting it out over messages and morals, ideas and ideals, leaving it all on the field, only to come back and do it again. And again. And again. This week, Battle Lines. The one where O'Brien and Dax solve a technical problem. I mention them now because I doubt we will again. John's got trivia coming up in a moment, but first... But first, a word from Eagle Moss in the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. Now, you know the ones. You know them. They're the ones that are officially authorized by CBS Studios. And we're talking about nice models made from quality, heavy materials. ABS materials and die-cast metal. And they're so accurate because they're based on the CG models that they actually use in production on the show. So there's not a more accurate model to be found. We're talking about quality all over the place. You know, Ken, I, I, I might know a thing or two about collecting Star Trek toys. Oh, might you? Yeah, I might have done that once or twice <laughs> in my life. All or right. All of my life. And, and this is exactly the kind of thing that I like because A, I'm a completist. Mm-hmm. I want them all. And, and B, I want the quality. I want the accuracy. I want to be able to look at it and go, yeah, that is exactly what it looks like on my TV. That's why I dig this collection. Are you just having these sent straight to your parents' house at this point, though? I, okay, so I, I won't say exactly. All right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that, though. Here's the thing. I mean, because, I mean, they are just, they're absolutely beautiful. I know I talked a couple of weeks ago about how we got, you know, so caught up in the details that we kind of just mm-hmm. forgot to talk about the the mise-en-scene, if you will, the, the, the wholeness uh, that is these ships. Yeah. They're big. That's one cool thing about this particular collection. The USS Shenzhou NCC-1227 is nearly eight inches front to back. Um, of course, they come with that collector's magazine that I love so much, uh, featuring behind-the-scenes info as well as in-universe information. And, of course, they come with that really cool display base. Did I mention the display base? I think I skipped that, didn't I? Or am I mentioning you, it you twice? You did before, but you did mentioned I mention it, it now. Did I mention it before? Oh. No. I skipped it before. It, I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah. Because if you hadn't, I was going to jump right in there and say, display base. Yeah, I know. You're a huge fan of that. Now, uh, the first ship in the collection, as I mentioned before, the Shenzhou, is available uh, to subscribers for only $9.95 with free shipping at eaglemoss.com slash Discovery Starships. Now, additional models, including the iconic USS Discovery, NCC-1031, the USS Corella, NCC-1255, and the reimagined Klingon Bird of Prey, well, they will ship monthly at an exclusive 20% discount 
off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. Subscribers are also entitled to free gifts worth over a hundred bucks and may cancel their subscriptions at any time. Full details may be found at eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Now, maybe you're not a completionist. Maybe you don't need every ship in the collection. You just want, you know, that one ship or those two ships that you like most. Well, you can get just the one or two ships that you want or the five or however many you want without having to subscribe. Shop.eaglemoss.com is one way to go about getting individual ships. Or you can stop by your local comic book shop uh, and see if they have them. Uh, You'll be picking them up there for the regular price of $54.95 each. But again, to subscribe, eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. Trivia is just around the corner, but first, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And uh, and with, with that bit of business out of the way, with the here's how you get in touch with us, please, won't you let John reach out and touch you with trivia. Here we go, Ken. Today's episode, Battle Lines, has a story by Hillary J. Bader. Now, you might remember when we first mentioned Hillary in Next Gen, where she contributed The Loss, Hero Worship, and Dark Page. She had a solid career as a writer of mostly superhero stories and mostly in animation, We'll see just a handful more of her story contributions in Deep Space Nine and Voyager. We mentioned before that she passed away in 2002. The teleplay for today's show is by Richard Danis and Evan Summers. Richard was a staff writer and story editor, starting with TNG. Notable contributions there were Deja Q and the one with the booby trap in it. uh, The name escapes me. Hmm. Uh, Evan though, makes his Star Trek debut with this episode, and his story is one of note. There are similarities with other writers. Uh, The struggle in Hollywood, selling a few scripts here and there. He even produced and starred in a documentary in 2005 called The Seeker about going to the annual motorcycle meetup in Sturgis, sort of a road trip movie about the ride there and pondering about life and By the way, he did all of this while being quadriplegic. Now, we lost Evan in 2010 at the age of 52, but we will see more of his Trek contributions in episodes to come. The original story, by the way, would have been centered around Cardassians versus humans, but that was abandoned pretty early on uh, to make sure that the loyalties of our main characters were a little more ambiguous. And this episode was directed by Paul Lynch, Here we are at the end of Paul Lynch's Star Trek run. Now, he knocked out five episodes of Next Gen, all the way from The Naked Now to The First Duty, and had just as many episodes of Deep Space Nine already so early in the run. He continued to direct a lot after Trek. You'll see his work on the Robocop TV series, The Outer Limits, Xena, Sliders, and more. 
By the way, Ken, we're saying goodbye to Paul Lynch. We're also saying goodbye to the Yangtze Kiang shuttle. Is that his going away present? Oh, it should have been. Man, if I were a director on Star Trek, I'd be like, well, thanks for the gig. I'll take a shuttle. If it were TNG, they would just go ahead and give you one anyway. They would insist. You wouldn't be able to get off the lot without them saying, here, take this, please. Yeah. Let's talk about our guest stars. So this week, we welcome back Camille Saviola, who plays Kai Opaka, just as she did in Emissary. And we have two major guest stars of note here. On the Null Ennis side, we have Paul Collins as Zlanko. Paul is English, uh, been in the business a long, long time, getting started way back in 1947. And by the early 50s, he was appearing in projects for Walt Disney, my favorite credit of which is doing the voice of John Darling in the 1953 Peter Pan. Fast forward a bit, throughout the 90s, he's appearing in TV guest roles all over the place, and he is still working as an actor and voice talent as of our recording. On the Ennis side, we have Jonathan Banks as Shala. Jonathan, well, he's another one of those that guy actors. You know, that guy. He's that guy uh, with a distinctive look, distinctive voice and presence. This might be his only Trek role, but you've seen him in plenty of other places. Uh, Community, ER, the original Gremlins, T.J. Hooker. Uh, he's probably best known now, though, for the recurring character Mike Ehrmantraut on Breaking Bad and its prequel series Better Call Saul. I, of course, will think of him checking the radar range. He's Gunderson in Airplane. There is a pop song that says... Love is a battlefield. Interestingly, a battlefield is also a battlefield. Prologue. Commander Sisko is rummaging through some old personnel files left behind by the Cardassian prefect. The notes they had on Kira aren't quite as awe-inspiring as Kira would have expected, leaving her to feel a bit underappreciated. No time to worry about it, though. There's a special guest visitor on Deep Space Nine... Kai Opaka herself. Why is she there? Well, she's a little vague about the answer, but she tells Kira she's contemplating prophecy. She's also looking out toward the wormhole, which gives Sisko an idea. Hey, let's take Kai on a little trip. Act 1. With the shuttle Yangtze Kian popping into the Gamma Quadrant, Sisko apologizes that there's not a whole lot of interest to see just yet, they better turn around. But hey, hope you liked what you saw. Opaka says she'd like to stay a little longer. Prophecies are vague, after all, and just like that, Kira starts to pick up a subspace signal. When they go to investigate, they find a moon surrounded by a network of artificial satellites. What's even more intriguing, Dr. Bashir says he's picking up life forms on the moon's surface, probably humanoid. Approaching for a closer look... Well, it seemed like a good idea in the moment. One of the satellites approaches the shuttle, releasing a huge burst of energy and sending the Yangtze Kiang out of control. The shuttle hits the surface hard. Everyone is thrown about, including Kaiopaka, who suffered the worst injuries. Even after Bashir's best efforts, the Kai is dead, leaving Kira utterly despondent. Her grief is cut short, though, when Sisko notices what Bashir had guessed at earlier. There are people here. Act 2. 
Back on DS9, Cisco is long overdue to check in, and Odo says the Bajorans are not too pleased at the idea that their Kai went off on a spontaneous joyride to another part of the galaxy. Chief O'Brien and Dax say they're working on it, and they'll take another shuttle to investigate. About those people on the Gamma Quadrant moon, though, they're a little rough around the edges, perhaps. Their leader, Shell La, says that his people, the Ennis, didn't get visitors, and by implication, that Sisko and his crew are in for a world of hurt. They're in a state of constant war with a brutal enemy, the Null Ennis, kept constantly there on this prison moon. Speaking of hurting, Kira took a few hits during the crash and Bashir administers to her to help with the pain. The Ennis have no doctors, which is weird since they are almost always under the threat of attack. Bashir says he might be able to help get them prepared, but hold on. Explosions, screaming, it's the stuff of an attack at this very moment. The Null Ennis definitely seem to have the upper hand. Blasts are exchanged, the Ennis are taking the worst of it, and Kira is able to stave off things getting worse by knocking part of the cave ceiling down onto their attackers. At the end of the skirmish, so many Ennis are dead or wounded, but one person who survived is walking into the cave now. It's Kai Opaka. Act 3. Aren't you supposed to be dead? Or something like it. Bashir says she checks out, and all Opaka can remember is experiencing the crash. Now, here she is. It makes no sense to anyone, but Bashir might have a lead on understanding what's going on. In his scan, it appears that Opaka's physiology has been altered at a cellular level, with some artificial technology, some sort of biomechanical presence. It's a mystery. What happened? If she'll be okay? But Bashir says he might get more answers if he could go back and use the computer on the runabout. By the way, it's not just Opaka. All around them, the Innis, who were just so brutally mowed down, start to come back to life. Bashir finds that all the Innis have the same biomechanics in them that are in Kaiopaka. He's definitely got to get back to the computer, and Shella says he'll make sure Bashir has protection to get there. This leaves Sisko with some time to get to know Shella and what exactly is going on here. The Ennis and Null Ennis have been locked in a battle for longer than anyone can remember. Nobody can remember why the war even started. But they were sent to this prison, and an example made of them by the perpetual torture of war. Kira's ready to jump up and fight the battle with them, but it's not her war, and even so, Shella says it's been going on for so long they don't even try anymore. Sisko offers to rescue them when his own crew comes for him. All they have to do is agree to stop fighting. Shella thinks it's impossible. It'll give it a shot and go talk to his counterpart on the other side, Zlanko. Act 4. Dax and O'Brien have been looking for any trace of the Yangtze Kyung, following a warp eddy here and there. It's led O'Brien to do some teching the tech, looking for the magnetic nature of the hull of the runabout. Shouldn't be too hard. He's just got to create something that hasn't been done up until now, and go hook that up to a probe. On the moon... Shalav reports that Zlanko is willing to talk. It's a start, right? Sisko heads off with Shalav, and Kira stays behind the cave with Apaka, which leads to a personal chat. The kind knows what's in Kira's heart. Even if Kira's been putting up a strong front, 
She was raised in violence, defined her life around what she was doing for her cause. And now? Well, she's got to forgive herself for living like that before she can move on to be someone else. Nikai understands, and she reassures Kira that the prophets will forgive someone who forgives herself. Hey, guess what? About the time we check in with Dax and O'Brien again, there's a breakthrough. The probes he sent out find something. It's a tiny fluctuation like they were looking for, and it's coming from that moon way over there. Set a new course. On that very moon, a summit of sorts. Zlanko hears out Sisko's proposal. That is, if they will only stop fighting for now, they can all be transported away from this moon, repopulated elsewhere, and end the fighting. Sounds good. But a few centuries of warfare have taught Zlanko to be suspicious. He thinks it's a trick set up by Shala and the other Ennis, despite Sisko's protest. To prove it, Zlanko says, Show all your people. Bring them out of hiding. Uh, yeah, right, says Shala. The mistrust turns to threats. The threats turn to violence. We're back where we started. It's a bloodbath as Ennis and Noel Ennis go at it again, this time with Sisko in the middle. Bashir, seeing what's happening, jumps in to save his commander with a warning. Despite what they've seen, they can't afford to die here. Act 5. Getting closer to the moon, Dax and O'Brien pilot the Rio Grande just close enough to see that satellite array. O'Brien steers them away, though. He's clever enough to figure that the satellites are blocking transmissions to and from the surface. That's why they're not seeing any traces of the Yangtze Kyung, and why they can't communicate with Cisco. It's also probably what took the other ship down, so they better stay away until they can figure out a way to get a signal through. On the surface, it's an utter mess. Bodies everywhere, all of them coming back to life as they do. What was it Bashir figured out before we went to commercial, though? Oh yeah, it was this. Those little machines in their cells are permanently a part of the Ennis and the Noel Ennis now, and they were programmed to be environment-specific. Nobody with those nanites in them can be removed from the moon or else they'll die. That goes for Kaiopaka, too. About that time, a voice barely cracks through to the communicator. It's O'Brien. They've got a handle on what's happening up there, and it'll be a while before they can beam the rest out of there. But hang on for now. He and Dax assume they can't just start blowing up satellites. There's probably a defense mechanism in place for that. They're working on it, though. Just need to nudge a hole in the mesh of satellites. Then they can all be beamed up. All but one, that is. Cisco goes to break the news to Opaka. But before he can do it, she has some news of her own. She's staying. Kira is shocked, but the Kai says this is the answer to the prophecy. She was brought there to help these people start to heal. Very well. She'll stay. Shala is ready to get going. That is until he hears the bad news from Bashir about those microbes being rigged to kill anyone who leaves their moon. There might be another way, though. Bashir thinks he can reprogram the microbes to not automatically heal those who are struck down. It is a way out. The Ennis and the Null Ennis would be left to fight, but there would be no resurrection at the end of each skirmish. Shala wants this badly, and Kira wonders if the fear of death would really help in their constant fighting. Uh, Kira, that's not what he had in mind. 
Shalat thinks this is the ultimate weapon now. If the microbes are disabled, the Ennis can win for good, wiping out the Null Ennis once and for all. Yeah. No. He hasn't learned a thing. O'Brien has thrown a decoy probe at the satellites, and this opens up a window just enough to beam the three out of there. As they leave, the fighting starts again, and Opaka bids her goodbye, saying they'll see each other again. The end. Don't know where. Don't know when. (laughs) But she knows they'll meet again. Nice. Some 26-hour day. Is it 26 hours? 26 hours. Yeah, I give him I give him fifty two hours, maybe more, to to sort it all out. Yeah. yeah. So won't you please say hello? I'm going to stop doing that song now. <laughs> uh, it's weird to me they get on the other side of the wormhole. I would think the wormhole, especially because we know that Kyle Paca knows that the wormhole is actually home of the prophets. That's actually that's on the sticker. Mm-hmm. It is right. <laughs> sure that's yeah. on the sticker. Home of the prophets. It says. Which is not a baseball team. Uh, it's weird to me that I would think just going through the wormhole would be enough. and That would be interesting. But they get the other side of the wormhole. And Cisco's like, I'm sorry, there's, there's really not a lot to see yet. Mm-hmm. What are they, building a theme park? What is it? Because it's like, oh, by the way, we're 67 years away at the fastest speed possible from where we just were. Right. But you get here and it's kind of crap. So nobody really stays long, but yeah, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to knock out that planet Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and I guess build like a, like a facsimile of a bigger planet. That'll be pretty. And, and, and a Stuckies. (laughs) Probably get that in there. That'll be good for that retro feel. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I I get it. Now here's the thing to his credit though. It is just a lot more space. And, and, you know, there's a lot of space there. There's also a lot of space in the alpha quadrant. Yeah, it was the yet part that got to me. I want to see the plans. I want to know what it is. He's like, oh, but you come back in five years, you won't recognize it. It'll be Mm -hmm. just, it'll be... Condos. It'll be, yeah. yeah. And Stuckies. Condos Mm -hmm. and Stuckies as far as Mm -hmm. the eye can see. Do you want to mention Mm -hmm. the pecan roll, by the way? Because you usually do when Stuckies comes up. Oh, man. Now I want one. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I know you you do. Uh, So I think I figured out the key to being a holy leader. Okay, go ahead. Watching this episode. Just be weird. Just be weird <laughs> to everybody you meet, right? Yeah. So, Kyle Paca, like, uh, uh, Cisco's like, uh, and unfortunately, there's nothing going through the wormhole. And Kyle Paca mm-hmm. just turns and looks at him. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. like, you, know, you got to figure it was a bit of a crapshoot. Like, maybe she wants to go through the wormhole. Maybe she wants right. dinner. I don't know which one. What do I? Uh, we'll go through the wormhole. Oh, good. Okay. Well, you could have just said that. But then, like, as they're approaching the shuttle, uh, she gives O'Brien that necklace, right? Mm-hmm. And and I don't know why that's going to mean anything to O'Brien. But what I would really love is if, like, when they get on the shuttle, she just reaches into her pocket and takes out one just like it and puts that on. It's just a right. thing she does <laughs> right. as a religious right. leader. Just like everywhere yeah. she goes, she's like, oh, oh, please give this to your mother for me. And then as soon as they're out of eye shot or whatever, as soon as they're out of sight, yeah, just put on yeah. another one. And then yeah. <laughs> one day a bunch of people will be on a, you know, whatever passes for a TV show in the 24th century mm-hmm. talking about the time that they met the Kai. And they're all like, oh, I thought that was just me because I, I got one of those necklaces too. Right. And then her old bodyguard's like, yeah, I got like a, I still got a box of 50 of them if anybody wants one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, well, here's what's funny. So as we said on the show before that, um, you know, I don't read your notes, you don't read my notes, and, mm-hmm. and there's all the prep that we do between the times that we talk to each other. It takes like nearly a week 
to put together an episode. And during that week, we're watching the episodes, we're taking our own notes, we're giving it our own thoughts. Here's the thing. I had this whole other bit of discussion about exactly that. <laughs> and, and it was... And here's the thing. I, I'm glad that you put that in there because I'd actually deleted that when I oh. got into the other heavier stuff for the discussion. Because mm. my whole thing was really about the the privilege that we give to religious figures. Mm. It's like, you know, I may not believe in somebody's particular religion, okay, or the, or the particular version of that religion that they practice. Yet, you meet somebody who is introduced as a religious figure and there's kind of – just sort of uh, by reflex is sort of a, uh, a, a deference that, that you give that person. O'Brien, he didn't meet Kaiopaka. The only people there who know about Kaiopaka and how important she would be, first of all, Kira, mm -hmm. because she knows, because she was raised in that culture. And then, yeah, Cisco's met her, and they had that very interesting uh, moment in Emissary. But again, th this is an alien from another world. It's not his culture, not his background. And, and I just thought it was interesting that, yeah, pretty much as you're saying here, you can just show up, you can act mysterious. Yeah. And you just say like, oh, it's, it's the prophecy, man. That's why I'm here. You know, and somebody asks questions and you just say, well, you know what? Prophecies are weird. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You, you can't do that. Yes. And then mm -hmm. just give them a trinket and send them on their way. Give them a trinket. Yeah. Here's the thing. I mean, you are giving O'Brien a little bit of uh, short shrift there because it is a Bajoran station. I mean, it wasn't built yes. by the Bajorans, but it's a Bajoran station. And she, for all intents and purposes, is the Pope, except like if, if there were just like one religious leader on Earth and it was the Pope and that's it. Right. right. So there are no yeah, Dalai yeah. Lamas, there are no Billy Grahams or whoever. Um, you know, there's just there's just one religious leader. And you would think that O'Brien would have picked up on that. Either that or you're just like, uh, she's weird. I should just, I just, just going to thank her <laughs> yeah. and wait till they're gone and then see if, uh, see if Quark will give me like, yeah, <laughs> some Latinum <laughs> for this. <laughs> but, but I mean, Brian has got a lot on his plate. He's, he's got stuff to fix. He's got he's still teaching ears. school. He's still teaching school. Exactly. Yeah. Cause Keiko wasn't back this week. Yeah. So he may not have time for that, you know? Um, here's the other thing that this is a, a weird episode for me because we've had a lot of episodes. I feel like recently where we've had plenty of pithy comments after the recap and then a pretty light discussion. And I, and I feel kind of the opposite this week where I feel like, you know, I had a handful of things to throw in here and then I feel like once we get to the next segment, we could just keep going on and on uh shop three for those of you playing at home by the time we get there. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll give it a shot here because here's something that reminded me of a previous discussion we had. We've mentioned this before, how someone not just on deep space nine, not just in star Trek, but all over TV, someone just shows up for dramatic effect and responds to a conversation they didn't hear. Okay. Not only does it happen here in a terrible way, Kira actually says, warn me about what, even though Miles said her name before he said, before she sees her file. But here's the thing. I do love her reaction. I, I love her coming out of the office and, and her reaction to not being as important as she thought she would be. It's, you know... She's she can chew a little scenery when uh, when given the chance. Um, Shala says that they stopped using energy weapons centuries ago, but when the attack comes, the first attack, it, it sure looks to me like they're both exchanging fire with energy weapons. <laughs> it kind of did, didn't it? It did. 
maybe their maybe their conventional weapons are just so hot that they glow. Maybe they're like tracers. Uh, yeah, that's good. Later on, it's all like axes and and spears and all the really all that stuff is just brutal. That was actually a weird thing to me that they were like um, they promised to bring no firearms. And then they all show up, and then they all show up with halberds or whatever, right? Yeah, right. I was like, yeah. I don't know that that was overly helpful. I don't know that not showing up with firearms necessarily did it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why that stipulation was okay. But then they both show up with knives or axes or whatever. All of the above. Yeah, halberds. I think I said earlier, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's the right weapon. My yeah. my D and D lore escapes me, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I like Cisco. Sure, sure. <laughs> All right. I just I want to make that clear. I, I like Cisco. I know everything we've seen of Cisco is not everything we're going to see of Cisco. Yeah. Um, I thought he was kind of a jerk to uh, O'Brien. Not O'Brien. I'm sorry. Bashir. I thought he was kind Agreed. of a jerk to Bashir. When Bashir is kind of like razzing him a bit. That's what I thought it was. He says, you know, letting them getting them off the planet. He's like, isn't that a little bit like assisting in a jailbreak? Mm-hmm. And boy, did Cisco just like tear him a new one. Right. <laughs> yeah. About the only thing I can figure is maybe Cisco is conflicted in what he had decided to do. Except we don't oh, see okay. any sign of that conflict except for the fact that he is just absolutely taking Bashir apart. Yeah, that that was uncomfortable because Bashir had that little bit of a smile on his face when he right. said it. And yeah, yeah. And then, you know what? Bashir, he's such a good guy. He goes out and saves Cisco when the fight breaks out. Because <laughs> otherwise he could have just been like, oh, you don't like my ideas? Okay. That would have been a bit harsh, wouldn't it? Yeah. Although, you know, Bashir may actually suffer from some sort of condition where he just smiles at the wrong time. Because remember at the end of The Passenger, <laughs> yes. when they murdered the coaster that was the passenger, Bashir's right. kind of like smiling then. And then like, you know, now he's like, he's like smiling and maybe his next sentence was going to be, I'm going to have to tell Starfleet Command about this, you know, or something. <laughs> yeah. All, all yeah. bright and perky. And uh, yeah, maybe oh, Cisco man. knew what he was doing. Maybe. Hey, in this episode, the United Federation of Planets gets as good a description as I've ever heard. And I I quoted it here, over a hundred planets who have allied themselves for mutual scientific, cultural, and defensive benefits. The mission that my people and I are on uh, is one to explore the galaxy. I I thought that was really, really good. I thought it was better than, oh, where have I heard it? Uh, uh, What, a a peaceful armada. Hmm. You know, I just thought it was it was a good one. If you had to sum it up and, and it sounds like Cisco had memorized that. It is. It is a good one. I do mm-hmm. like that. It is also always weird to me to hear the commander of a space station that sits in one place, say our mission is exploration. <laughs> right. I right. mean, it, it's weird, actually, because, you know, in other Star Treks, I'm thinking particularly of uh, one that we won't get to on this show for many, many years to come. But uh, mm-hmm. Discovery, they almost never talk about, oddly enough, Discovery. They almost yeah. never talk about exploration on that show. Right. And yet this guy who, if you're looking for Cisco, you will find him in this one place almost all the time. <laughs> He's like, we're explorers. Well, when I say we, it's like the royal way. Well, not royal because we're yeah. like a, you know, sort of a, you know, socialist collective. But <laughs> the socialist we, we, we explore, even though yeah. all of us don't get but, to. But, uh, oh, but look at that wormhole, huh? Look, look at that wormhole. There's lots to explore over there if anybody wants to actually go exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, I did wonder at some point, if nobody ever dies from the battle... 
why do these uh, look i know this is all metaphor i know it's all here for the discussion but why do they still keep putting resources into the battle i mean it, it seemed like the null ennis had the permanent upper hand and why wait wait why did it seem like they had the permanent upper hand to you it felt like that to me in the episode. It felt like that was the setup, that you had the Ennis in the cave all the time. It felt like, at least what we were seeing, the Ennis were always on the defensive. That's true. Now, I, now I realize that we're only seeing a slice of this. Um, and and things could have been very diff- different, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 26 hours ago, for all we know. But it, it's it felt like the setup was that the Ennis were always in the defensive position. And it was just bad luck that, uh, you know, Cisco, Kira, Bashir, and Kaiopaka end up there. Because no matter what happened, they were going to be attacked. You didn't hear Shella talking about attacking the Null Ennis until the very end when he thought the microbes would be a tactical advantage. I guess it could be a difference in the way they both are. But I mean, when you ask, you know, why do they even bother putting resources in anymore? Shalal actually says, um, uh, Shalal? Shalal. 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 Okay. Um, He does actually say uh, that they used to defend themselves better. They used to guard themselves better. They Mm -hmm. used to go on the offensive. So, I mean, it feels to me like, well... We start to get a little bit into the next segment. I mean, war is just habit for them at this point. Yep. So it seems to me they keep just enough stuff around to kill that guy and hopefully defend themselves a little bit. But they're not putting real resources into it because they're just going to die. They're just going to live. They're just going to come back and do it all again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of the discussion that we have about about the mirror universe or about the Ferengis. When you when you create something that is high concept like this and you, you have an idea to get across a specific discussion. Yeah. The problem is you keep taking it to logical extremes and you go, okay, well, would they actually keep living like that? Yes. The point of the story is that they're stuck in the habit, but would they actually keep living like this? Could they actually maintain this? At some point they got to eat, you know, at some point they have to do other things. So would that keep going? But yeah, for the purposes of the story, yes, they keep going exactly the way they are. Hey, really quick question. I know that they kind of ran out of time at the episode because, hey, we, we got to beam up. Sorry, just a short window to get out of here. If the microbes can be reprogrammed to not regenerate the dead, uh, you know, maybe they could be reprogrammed to not be environmentally specific. Oh, sorry. Got to go. Bye. It does not matter how many times the Ennis lose, because every Shala, Lala, every Wo-O, Wo-O, still shines. We'll go behind battle lines in just a moment. We'll go deeper into battle lines in just a moment. We'll get more into battle lines in just a moment. But first, you know, John and I have a lot of fun uh, talking to each other about Star Trek. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes John and I have a lot of fun uh, talking to each other about Star Trek. But one thing that we really love to do is talk to other people about Star Trek as well. And uh, and we have a place, actually, where we do that every week. And that place, that, that thing, 
well, that show actually is called Mission Log Live. Now, we're not just talking to each other on that show. We also bring on a special guest every week, or almost every week, to, uh, to talk on that show with us, to join us on that show, to talk over, you know, some Star Trek or maybe Star Trek related stuff. Uh, but it's not just the guests we're talking to. Uh, we're also talking to, uh, we're also talking to people who listen and call in and talk to us. So those people would be you. You, the people who are listening to Mission Log, well, every Tuesday night when we get together, we want you to come along. We want you to join us and be a part of the show. So it's pretty easy to do. Tuesday nights, it's Mission Log Live. So when Star Trek Discovery is on, we'll probably be talking about Discovery. When Discovery is not on, we talk about all kinds of stuff. We've had guests talk about science. We've had guests talk about psychology and politics and activism, all kinds of stuff wrapped around the philosophy of Star Trek. We even talked about World's Fairs with Doug Drexler. In fact, Doug and who else has been on our show, Ken? Oh, golly. Dayton Ward, Chase Masterson, Rod Roddenberry, um, uh, uh, Robert J. Sawyer was on the show one time. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a bunch of people, and we got a bunch of people lined up, too. Um, and then, of course, if you have questions for any of those people, or if you just want to geek out about Star Trek stuff, that is why we do it live, because we want your calls. So, join us Tuesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific on Facebook. It's actually our page on facebook facebook.com slash mission log pod you can also uh, watch on youtube uh, youtube.com slash roddenberry prod but we're not monitoring that for the questions and the uh, and the interaction so so the place if you want to you know really take part in the show facebook.com slash mission log pod and of course you can always download the episode later um, just search for mission log live wherever you go for podcasts as you know what do all of the above I'm an all-of-the-above kind of guy. So subscribe to Mission Log Live wherever you get audio podcasts and join us live every Tuesday night. Again, that's 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific at facebook.com slash missionlogpod for Mission Log Live. I want to say Miri was episode, what, 17 of the original series? Oh, you're good. I don't know. Is that true? Is that right? I, I, you're very close. How about we it, just it, say it, it was? Seven, okay. <laughs> okay. I believe it was 17. My point is, uh, way all the way back to the first season of the original series, uh, what, has been, what has been the thing that'll get everybody? What's been the thing that's just going to wipe you out? It's going to hurt you. It's going to be terrible if you try to go for it. Oh, it's uh, Bones with a Hypo. Because he will just come out of nowhere. And uh, see, to me, that sounds like a good weekend, but whatever. Uh, okay. Life right. prolongation is what I was thinking about, John. Life prolongation. And here yes. in this episode, we have life prolongation as freaking torture. Yeah. Kind of amazing. Like, you're, you're never going to die. You're never going to die. Keep fighting each other. Keep killing each other. That's fine. You're never going to die. I did actually wonder if their home world is full of enlightened individuals who also live forever. Hmm. Because and they just get rid of those who battle. I guess. I mean, they said. Hmm. See, that was another thing that sort of weirded me out about this episode. But uh, we can come back to that in a few minutes if you want to. It was just interesting to see that. Just once, I want to meet a, a character on Star Trek who's like, "Yeah, no, I've mastered death. I, I've, I've been alive for three thousand years." And 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 the plot of our episode has nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Just one and, time uh, we meet somebody who's like who's like figured out how to live forever and do it right. You say, "Hey, life's pretty good." You know, <laughs> right. well, we just get past that hump of 
1683. Get, get past that, that little mortality bugaboo. Yeah. Now, I remember back when we did, Mary, which, by the way, I just confirmed is episode eight. Ah. So you're still very, very close, though. Season one, and, and it was quite an interesting discussion for us. And I remember people writing in saying, hey, guys, a message here is don't fool with Mother Nature. Hmm. You know, because what, once you try that life prolongation thing or whatever it is you're up to, fate, a.k.a. Mother Nature, will come around and take it away from you or mess it up for you. And I thought, you know, th this is sort of the weird relationship that Star Trek has with technology. We have technologies that do incredible things like take us to the stars and and solve all kinds of medical issues for us. But then Star Trek says, oh, but if you take it that one step too far, we're not going to tell you exactly where that step is, but you take it one step too far and then it's just all going to be a mess. And then so to see that used as an absolute weapon in this episode yeah. was uh, just an interesting thing to... Uh interesting thing to witness yeah there's so much to discuss about this episode um i i liked the uh the the question that kai opaka posed how did your fight begin and uh shella can't even remember and what i like is that it's not relevant to the episode i like that this episode gives you exactly the amount of information that you need Mm -hmm. to get through the point of the episode. And, and the whole thing about this, it, it, it's about the weariness of war. So the reasons absolutely don't matter. The strategies and battle tactics don't matter, which Kira has to find out. Um, it's just hell to be in it. Um, th there are so many good lines, and I wrote down a bunch of these. Uh, when you cease to fear death, the rules of war change. That's what Shala says. And then um, Cisco, his challenge to them, if you've had enough of suffering, then make them stop. Easier said than done, clearly, throughout the uh, the course of the episode as it plays out. And then Kira, at the very end, says, you think the fear of death will end the fighting? It never has in any other war. Of course, this is before she understands what is actually on Shaola's mind. Um, and it's really too bad that Shaola doesn't get there, that, that, that there is a peaceful solution. He can only see disabling the microbes as a method of war. I kind of, and I know that we're going to get to this in our wrap-up, uh, but there were so many classic Trek stories that popped into my mind as I watched this over and over again. And with that in particular, it was uh, a private little war. Hmm. Kirk had to leave that planet knowing that there was nothing that he could really do. And there is a kind of helplessness as Cisco and Kira and Bashir leave to think that, oh, well, particularly for, for a guy like Cisco, I mean, Kira, yes, she's not Starfleet. She was not brought up in the Starfleet tradition. Um, that Cisco and Bashir get to leave this place thinking, ah, isn't this the time in the episode when we usually get to leave and we've left them with some parting words that will inspire them and we'll come back in 10 years and they will have built a, a new and thriving civilization out of this, just like Kirk would have done, just like Picard would have done? No, no, that, that's not what happens here. Well, they've left them with Kaiopaka, though. They have, and, they, and there is some hope in that. Well, yeah. Here's the thing. I did not, I intentionally did not look ahead. I mean, when she says at the end that their paws will cross again. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, Shala does have 
some sense of reasoning about him. I mean, he's got what seems like an eternity of fighting that he now has to fight if he's ever going to get past where they are, if he's ever going to get past the part where, you know, I, I kept thinking about the, the Tom Cruise uh, movie, the, the, you know, live, die, repeat, mm, <laughs> or yeah, live, die, yeah. live, repeat, or whatever it was. Live, die, repeat, I think is what it was. That's pretty much what their lives are. But yeah. they do have somebody there now who is committed to showing them a better way. What I started to say a minute ago is I intentionally didn't look ahead to see if we're ever going to see this again. Because if it is yeah. true yeah. that she and Cisco are going to cross paths at some point, and it's true that she has this microbe that won't let her off the planet, either it's going to be have, have to be some mystical woo-woo whatever thing, or mm-hmm. things are actually going to change for the people on this planet. And so that's kind of, I mean, that is kind of a, I don't know, there's a, there's a tiny bit of hope there. Because I do think that Shala was... I wouldn't even go so far as to say cautiously optimistic. I don't think he was optimistic at all that the Nolanists were going to go along with anything, but he was willing to go, you know, walk over to their cave or their hut or wherever they were and say, listen, I know you want to kill me because you do every day, but hear me out. Right. I mean, there's just enough. I mean, that's almost Alt Spock at the end of Mirror Mirror saying, Mm -hmm. I'll think about it. I mean, yeah. and that's and that's really all he can promise at that moment. But he does. Whether whether Shala thought it was going to happen, whether he knew it was going to happen, he does actually take that step out. I mean, literally going over to them. You know, when he could have been dropped, you know, from from a hundred feet by anybody with those not energy energy weapons, <laughs> uh, he does go out there and and uh, and and extend. Um, I wouldn't go necessarily so far as to say to extend the hand of peace. It's sort of sad at the end when he's like, oh, you have a way to, you have a way that you, if you could re-engineer those microbes and we could kill them and finally win. Okay. Well, that sounds terrible, except he is looking to a time where they're no longer fighting. Now, is he just looking to win or is he looking for peace? I mean, that's you know one question. The other thing yeah. is I do understand why he would want to do that right now because he came with an offer of peace. And and they drew on him, ultimately. So, I mean, I'm not saying all of that makes it right. I'm saying you do see signs of hope in what happens with Shala. And now they've got the guy. So, I mean, yes, they, unfortunately, it can't all be solved right by the end of the episode. I, I hate the idea, though, that uh, that the Kai gets stuck in that same pattern as well. The, uh, Shala and his people, they, they get up every day and they, they battle to the death and then they wake up from that and they do it again. And I, I hate to think that Kai Opaka is going to be a casualty in that every day or every other day and keep trying to preach the peace and then gets mowed down again and keeps trying again and again and again. Well, it's not just the, the same circular uh, a thing over and over. How long was she Kai while Bajor was occupied by the Cardassians? Yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, she's done the long slog through. This is always terrible. This is always terrible. This is always terrible, but she keeps working towards whatever good thing is going to be there. And eventually something good does happen. I'm not saying she's going to fix it for this planet. And like I say, part of me wishes I had gone ahead to look it up to see if we ever do see her again and if this ever happens again. But then I kind of didn't want to know. I, I look forward to being surprised if, you know, we actually do hear about these people again. Yeah. Uh, and if we don't, then when we do our season seven recap, we'll be like, hey, whatever happened to Kaiopaka? <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about her for just a moment. I, I mean, religious leader or not, I, I respect her decision to stay, though she 
really had no choice but to stay, <laughs> uh, you know. But but she she decided that before she knew what was going on. Um, and, and here's what I like about it: we, we don't even really need the mystical element uh, of her being called to be where she is uh, to get that this is a compassionate woman who is looking for purpose and looking to make a difference for someone else. I mean, the, these are noble and incredible values and virtues to have. This, in fact, I think is a much more heroic version of Kayopaka than we got before. We only got that little bit of her in Emissary. And remember, before Cisco went to meet her, we heard Kira say, oh, uh, Kayopaka, she's, she's you know religious leader for our people, uh, but she can't do anything about this. She never talks to anybody. And we're like, well, She's she's the leader. What what's she doing? You know, but she's going to talk to Cisco. This is putting her was putting her faith in action. It, it is actually doing doing the thing. Um, and I, I kind of joked before that you know that is sort of the weird thing about prophecy that is usually vague enough that you can go out in search of the answer and find something to fit it, no matter what, mm-hmm. because you can bend whatever you find to fit whatever you thought that prophecy was. Um, You know, maybe by that same argument, maybe the prophecy meant that she needed to stay and help her own people. But (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying that's a possibility too, but she, she is staying committed to her, her belief and putting that belief in practice and actually working for the peace there. So I, I think this is a tremendous way to use that character. I was really, satisfied with uh, with what they did with Kayopaka because I, I I wasn't really too crazy about what we got from Emissary. Yeah. But then Emissary wasn't really her story in the way that this one was. Yeah, and agreed. It's I mean I, what's funny is now I keep I keep sort of like trying to handicap the whole thing and go okay, what do you think the chances are? Well, there was a weird thing that happened actually at the beginning where they said um that all of the people on the planet Bashir said they were all concentrated in a in a 12-kilometer square or 12 square kilometers or something like that. There aren't that many people, but they all stay really close because, you know, uh, their drive is to kill each other. And so that's going to yeah. be difficult if they go further apart, even though they could easily have gone further apart on this moon and, you know, lived until the point that they, um, well, until their populations got so big, they eventually have to fight each other again, if that is still what they want to do. What's neat, though, about this is they, I mean, it's such a small area, and they are going to do the live, die, repeat thing so many times. And every time, Kaiopak is going to be there, go, hey, hey, why don't we try something different today? No? Right, okay, right. fine. Uh, sort of like at the end of, um, at the end of, um, I'm not ruining the end of this movie, but sort of like the end of Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is like, like has to face off against somebody, but he's a master of space and time. So every time it goes poorly, he just comes back. And like, you know, about the 10th or 12th or 1000th or whatever time, he's like, can, can we try something else now? Mm-hmm. Can we do something different now? And he keeps getting mowed down and he keeps coming back and says, okay, now can we try something else? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, she's the first new thing that's come along there in a while. I mean, of course, I mean, you can also go the other way, and it's the impossibility of Star Trek. She can take that risk, because part of me wants to say, yeah, so see, somebody just shows up and shows them a different thing. So, hey, why don't we go to whatever the latest war-torn region is? And I don't want to name any particular one, because first of all, I don't want to upset anybody. But second, I don't know when you're listening. Six weeks from now, six months from now, six years from now. 
it could be a completely different place. But you can't say, oh, well, what they need is just somebody to go talk to them. I'll go do that because you could easily die and then you've actually accomplished nothing. Kyle Pocket can easily die, get up tomorrow and try again. <laughs> so, right. I mean, yeah. on the one hand, it's like, oh, maybe maybe somebody can just say, wait, what about peace? You know, and if she can't be heard over the gunfire this time, well, maybe she will be tomorrow because she could just say it differently because she can't die. Yeah. I'm curious. There was something that confused me, and maybe it's not worth talking about. I'm curious how the NS and the Null NS are supposed to serve as an example to the planet that they're from. Because uh, Shala said they they couldn't stop their fighting, and so the authorities said, that's fine, and they sent them off to this other planet, and they you know made an example of them. Are they watching them on TV? Are they a story that they tell now? Is it just the banishment that's doing that? Because you said you thought of you said you thought of a private little war. I thought of a taste of Armageddon because, uh, yep, uh. <laughs> well, but maybe for different reasons though. I thought of it because, okay. and a taste of Armageddon. We're just kind of assuming that that other planet is killing themselves, right? Like they're supposed to. Yeah. We all had this. We had this arrangement, and so we're killing ourselves over here because we said we would. And we could actually check with other planet to make sure that they're actually killing themselves. To, no, we trust them. I mean, sure, we want to kill them, but we trust them. So they're probably killing themselves just like we're killing ourselves. I mean, the, the planet that made an example of them, are they still being held up as an example? Or is it like that was a thousand years ago and, and they're just like the boogeyman now? Nobody actually believes that it's still going on? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I found that part kind of odd. There's no real message to it, though, but it was – and I, it's mm -hmm. not like it was a sticking point for me, but I was more like, okay, I kind of get that, except I don't really get it because how are they an example if it's not on TV every night? Yeah. And then that's kind right. of a weird thing because if it's on TV every night, is it being held up as a tragedy or does it become just sort of a comedy? Yeah. Like the ridiculousness of war, the comedy of war. Oh, oh, here he comes. Shala's never good at this move. Yep, yeah, down he goes. <laughs> All right, who had Chala going down three minutes in this battle? As it was just, it was kind of an odd. Um, I don't, I did not quite understand how they were being made an example, unless it's just the being cast out part, and then the fighting forever is just because fighting forever is what they do. Let's talk about Kira for a moment because she's a, another centerpiece of this episode, and, and I wondered if there was really growth for Kira here. So we're only a dozen episodes in, and we we've seen Kira be fiery and 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 just full of energy, and she will gladly butt heads with the people around her, and she got her loyalties challenged early on in uh, Pass's prologue. So I. I, I like to think that there was some growth for her here. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I haven't watched much ahead to know what becomes of Kira. Um, but she goes through a lot in this episode. And, and I'm glad that they opened with her being upset about how the Cardassians saw her. I watched that scene at first and I thought, okay, that's a, a funny, light little thing to open with. But... I, I, I sort of I, I thought of that and and lines from another big sci-fi franchise stuck in my head. I'm looking for a great warrior. Wars not make one great. <laughs> so here here she is defining herself by how her enemies see her and defining herself by how tough she is and defining herself by doing her job and and uh what she did for the Bajoran resistance and all of this stuff. Um 
I almost feel like in a way we didn't get enough of her journey in this one, but that's a really, really minor quibble because it, we got six and a half more seasons to go with her. Um, her moment with uh, Kai Opaka was, was really nice. Uh, don't deny the violence inside you. Only when you accept it can you move beyond it. And Kira says, I've only known violence since I was a child. It was an interesting insight into her. Um, and, and it was a, a great way to break down her barriers. So you don't just see her as one note. She's tough. She will butt heads with people. Well, no, you actually get a, a, a glimpse of the psychology that makes her in this. They tried that before on TNG. You know, I, I think about the little glimpses of people's childhoods that we got on that. First and foremost, you know, you, you have Riker meeting his father. You have Deanna in, in all these encounters with her mother and, and the little bits that we glean from those, but not really in a profound way like this, where somebody has almost a, a, a crisis of faith to say like, oh, well, who I am, or at least who I think I am right now, isn't necessarily who I have to be going forward. And I thought it was a really mature and and thoughtful way to portray a character, not just in this show, but in all of Star Trek. When you say you wonder if she actually learned anything, um, what what that made me think of, actually, as we were watching the show as well, or as I was watching the show, excuse me, was what I've talked about before with um, Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm. Or almost any movie you ever see, somebody has like an epiphany and we assume, I mean, it, it, usually that happens towards the end of whatever movie or TV show. And the assumption is they lived happily ever after, right? Mm -hmm. Just as the Ennis and the Noel Ennis have, they don't even remember how long now of fighting each other every day for as long as they can possibly remember. Kira does have her whole history of, of fighting. She has her whole history of anger. She has her whole history of, I need to figure out you know she doesn't walk into a room without checking for all of the exits, yeah. right? And that's that's who she's been her whole life. And so I don't expect that, oh, well, now she's had this breakthrough moment with Kyle Pocket, so she's not going to be like that anymore. Hopefully, and this will be an interesting thing to see about uh, the storytelling on Discovery, they're keeping track enough of that that we will see her slowly change from that. Because I, I know next week she's not going to be, like, you know, exactly who she wants to be. But hopefully, you know, Four seasons from now, we're not watching her be the same hothead, the same, you know, all of the things that she's been because she has had this moment. But mm -hmm. I mean, this moment is a starting point. This moment is not. And she lived happily ever after. Nothing you could say could tear me away from my Kai. Nothing you could do because I am stuck like glue. To my Kai. Battle Lines. This episode is called Battle Lines. I don't know if you noticed, uh, but there are uh, lines of battle in this episode. I think that might be... Hmm. Uh, where they got that. Although certainly you can dig a little bit deeper and talk about, oh, the uh, the fight uh, uh, the fight that uh, Kira is having within herself. Mm. It, it may be another one of those multi-layered titles, but at the very least, you know, there's just the, the fight between the Ennis and the Noel Ennis. 
Um, but of course, there's much more than the title to the show. Heck, there's the show itself. Uh, this is the part of the episode where we talk about the messages, the morals, and the meanings, and we try to decide uh, for ourselves uh, whether the episode holds up. Let's start with that. Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned, John? Yeah, I mean, wow. Yeah, the thing about this episode is I, I feel like we could just sort of go through scene by scene and in some places line by line and you could pick out some bit of truth in it. Something about the insanity of war, the frustration of violence, whatever it is. We, we just keep going and then there's all the great character stuff in here. Um and as you mentioned before, and as I mentioned before, I feel like this episode is very TOS. Hmm. Now, it's funny that you mentioned A Taste of Armageddon, because that's one of the first notes that I wrote for myself. This story is very much A Taste of Armageddon, but it's kind of the opposite of A Taste of Armageddon. Hmm. The thing about A Taste of Armageddon is that they they thought that they were so sophisticated having this clean war. You know, they, they, they were still trapped in this battle, this perpetual battle, but... They weren't destroying any buildings, and everybody just sort of voluntarily marched themselves off to these disintegration chambers. And, and look how far they had evolved and, and made war this, this clean, easy, simple thing to do. And, of course, Kirk is appalled and comes in and destroys their computers because he's Kirk. You know, this is a, a group of people who are constantly locked in the horror and the physical terror of war, no matter what. And they don't get to get in the disintegration chamber and go away. They have to do it every day. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, the, this time we, we leave them now. They, they have Kaiopaka. We hope for the best. Um, but our, Starfleet officers, the two that were there, plus Kira, they leave. And that made me think of a private little war, that there's a, a tragedy to that. It's just like, oh, well, we, we hope that we got through, but the last words that we heard from this guy, Shala, is how he was upset because he thought he was going to be able to wipe out the enemy once and for all. Mm -hmm. um, now, the writers say that they were inspired by Day of the Dove, which I thought was interesting because that that is another story that just kind of wants the audience step back from the battle and say, look, war is ridiculous. And all we have to do is just stop if we want this to stop. Um, oh, hey, you want another reference? It's not a Star Trek reference. I, I'll say it's like uh, Ralph and Sam in the Looney Tunes cartoons. <laughs> Sam the sheepdog and and Ralph the uh, what was he a coyote yeah um, so they yeah they, they they go to work every day they punch in they just beat the tar out of each other mostly Sam just like hanging out waiting for the coyote to do something terrible to himself or screw up but it's violent and then they just punch out every day like yep that's that's what we do it's it's, it's our nature that's the thing we're stuck in um but it, seriously, the, the whole dynamic just reminded me so much of classic Trek at its metaphoric best. Um, the, the, I mean, even just the structure of the show, the crash survivors felt like that old school landing party. Instead of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, we get Kira and Sisko kind of sharing the Kirk duty uh, with Bashir in the doctor role because, of course, and uh, Kyle Paca almost picking up that Spock mantle in the places where Cisco leaves off with that. Um, and yeah, and I really hope that at the end of the day, Opaka is going to be all right. 
This is an episode that I liked more and more every time I watched it. Um, I, there were certain things I didn't like. I, that first scene of Kira losing it over Opaka's death, I felt like it was a bit over the top. But then that later scene with those two was so wonderful and so heartfelt. Um, and I, 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 like I said, I also really appreciated that cold open more and more. Mm -hmm. Because the more I watched the episode, having gone through it, and seeing Kira's change in the episode, seeing her journey, I appreciated more where she was coming from in that opening scene. So to me, this holds up beautifully. This is one of my favorites that we've watched so far. And um, it's not an episode that I loved the first time I watched it. But as DS9 has done, the more and more I watch some of these episodes, the more and more I like them. So to me, this definitely holds up quite well. How about you? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it definitely holds up. I don't have nearly as much to say as you said, <laughs> because um, you said a lot there. But I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Jonathan Banks. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. to. Well, where do I start? There's definitely a lot of stuff to think about in this episode. And I like episodes that give us a lot of stuff to think about. I especially like the episodes that are good and give us a lot to think about. Because a lot of times we'll watch Spock's brain and be like, wow, that's some pretty amazing stuff. Sadly, most people will never see it because they'll watch it and go, this is idiotic. This is a really good episode that gives you a lot to think about as well. Um, as I said, I am actually a fan of Jonathan Banks. Never know his name, but I always love it when I see him and stuff. Um, what was surprising, and I'm not saying this is like, this is why you watch it, but the action in this episode is really good. Hand-to-hand -hand combat and Trek can be like really <laughs> tricky, you know, yeah. it can yeah. be really bad. It just looks like that guy's not even close to anybody there. I mean, if you watch it, you know, over and over again, it starts to look rehearsed, but you know, that's because it's rehearsed. And uh, you're watching it over again and again and again. My reaction the first time I watched it was pretty visceral. And it was, it was, I don't know why I was surprised because these are people who fight. They're out there supposedly talking peace, but they brought axes to a peace negotiation. Right. Probably this is going to end poorly. And the action was, I mean, and I bring that up because action is a lot of times where Star Trek falls down. I think, I think this episode hit pretty much everywhere. I mean, you're right. When Kyle Pocket died, it was a little bit over the top for me the first time too. Um, but yeah, yes, yes. This episode absolutely holds up. And then of course it's just chalk, chalk, chalk full of messages. And, uh, I'll throw it back to you to, to tell me what some of the ones you picked up were. Uh, you know, I, I think we've all, we've all seen it somewhere. Uh, how about the message of war is over if you want it. <laughs> I know that that sounds cheesy. And look, I've watched so many interviews with John Lennon because I'm a Beatles fan. Uh, why? Because I have two ears and a heart. And um, yeah, I, look, it, you can easily chalk up something like that as very dated and a little naive. And John Lennon rambles a lot. But the message is there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to phrase it better than he and Yoko did by saying that. Um, that is the central message of this episode. And the way that we had said before that usually when Star Trek deals with war, it's asking the audience to take a step back and look at it and say, this is stupid. There is no reason for whatever, whatever 
these two factions think is important, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not that important when it comes down to them killing each other. Um, there's also a character thing here that I really like, that I, I appreciate stories like this that suggest that we've become pretty good at preparing for war, but how good are we at preparing for peace? So Star Trek has challenged us this way before, and I feel like in some ways it's almost a little too abstract through the lens of science fiction. Um, so I hope the more that we talk about it, the less so that may be the case. I'll jump the timeline in a big, big way here um, and talk about uh, Star Trek Beyond. We got a long ways to go before we get to the J.J. Abrams movies. Yeah. Um but there was something at the core of Star Trek Beyond that I really liked, and that was taking the character of this captain who thought that his role in life was to be a warrior and didn't understand that it was not only okay, it, it was desirable, it, it was important to retrain himself to be a figure for peace. That's what Kira's learning in this episode, and that's what we want everybody else to learn in this episode. And like you pointed out, you know, maybe there's that tiny glimmer of hope for Shella, and maybe with Kaiopaka being there, if it takes her a hundred deaths or a thousand deaths to get there, maybe she'll get there. But there's sort of a retraining that we have to do to say that, okay, we figured out all that other stuff. We figured out how to kill each other. We figured out battle tactics and all of that. But what do we actually get to accomplish when we decide that we can work for peace and really thrive at it? So uh, those are the two big things that I picked up. How about you? Um, though it was not to me the most compelling part of the episode, I found that the biggest message I picked up was actually the part with uh, uh, the part about Kira. Um, and it was one line in particular. It was Kaiopaka saying, don't deny the violence inside you. Um only when you accept it can you move beyond it. Uh, shout out to another TOS episode. It was rem reminiscent to me of um, The Enemy Within. Oh, sure. Uh, Logie Kirk did not have to like Agro Kirk, and Agro Kirk did not have to like Logie Kirk, but each had to accept that the other was part of Kirk, otherwise they were going to die. They were going to be torn apart. And the same kind of thing is happening with Kira, in a way. I mean, she's now... I mean, The space station that she's on, yes, is owned by the Bajorans, but it's being run by the Federation, and the Federation's not the, not the warrior class, right? They're the, let's put that behind us now and, and figure out what kind of good we can do now that whatever battles we had to fight are over. Um, all the Ennis and the Noel Ennis have ever known is the fight, and they're letting the fact that that's all they've ever known dictate who they're going to be forever. And in Kira and her discussion with Apaka, uh, specifically her saying that all she's known was violence since she was a child, um, with her hitting that, uh, the two of them are saying that they can move beyond it. And, and, and that's, you know, that's hopefully where we see hope. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Check out the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com. Over there, you'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, and more on the way. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. 
For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, The Storyteller. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. We will meet again. Do not know where, do not know when. But I know, we will meet again. Some sunny day. transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.